The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Amen. Well, you can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. And our passage today is verses 27 to 31. So we're going to finish the chapter. Um, but uh, for the sake of context, I'd like to begin reading in verse 21. So Romans 3.21 says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. By way of review, last week uh, we looked at uh, verses 26 or 24 through 26, and we focused on four uh, heavy, long, and, and complicated words, kind of big concepts that, that are hard to wrap your brain around. Justification, redemption, propitiation, and glorification. And those words uh, represent some marvelous truths which are at the core of our faith and the foundation of our hope in Christ. And I hope that, that you were encouraged by God's Word, and I hope that you were uh, just encouraged to rest in the finished work of Jesus and trust in Him. But, but I recognize that it's not easy necessarily to wrap your brain around some of the things that we talked about last Sunday. And Wednesday night in our Bible study, we had uh, just a a fascinating discussion, just kind of working our way through those concepts, mulling them over, trying to understand them some more. And and so they are complex, and they're they're kind of hard to comprehend. And and maybe you were left last Sunday wondering, well, what what do I do with all this? What does this mean for how I live my life? I'm, I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven someday. What does this mean for how I live today? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because our text for today, verses 27 through 31, draw out three very important implications of the gospel for real practical life. Folks, the gospel is not just something that gets you to heaven and then you deal with the rest of life somewhere else. No, the gospel is the foundation for how we approach all of life. And so you can see that Paul frames verses 27 through 31, these implications of the gospel with, with a series of questions. So there are uh, three questions in verse 27. 
There are two more in verse 29, and there is a sixth question in verse 31. So, so when we read through this, this passage, uh, just imagine a Jewish reader whose head is spinning after verses 21 through 26. I mean, he's always believed that he's going to heaven someday because he is a Jew and he has, for the most part, obeyed God's law. And here comes Paul, and Paul has completely undercut the foundation of this guy's confidence. And he has been arguing that we are justified solely by faith in the finished work of Jesus. And this Jewish reader, he's not so sure. He's not quite sure he buys it, and he has big questions. And so Paul has some very important answers for those questions that that with important implications, not just for this Jew, but for all of us Gentiles as well. And I'd like to summarize Paul's answers to these questions with three big assertions. And the first one is, I'm going to turn it on. Uh, the first big assertion is boast in Christ alone. Now, now what we see here again, as, we, as we've seen a lot uh, all the way through Romans 2 and 3, is that Paul frequently crafts his argument in these chapters as a debate with an imaginary uh, Jewish opponent. But, but even though he's, he, this is kind of a, you know, an imaginary guy that he's debating, the, the concerns that this guy raises are, are things that would have weighed on any Jew who was reading through what Paul is saying in these chapters. So the first question that Paul anticipates from, from a Jewish reader uh, of verses 21 through 26 is, is given there in verse 27. The question there is, where then is boasting? Now, now, that's a question that, that most people aren't bold enough to ask. Like, I doubt you've ever shared the gospel with someone, and at the end of your gospel presentation, they say, well, if I believe that, what do I get to brag about? I mean, most people aren't going to say that, right? They know they're not supposed to, to hit, hit on that issue. But we all know, but, but, but the reality is, is even though we're probably not going to say we don't want to boast, the reality is our desire to boast keeps a lot of people from receiving Christ. The fact is, is that sinners like to boast. Now, 1 John 2, verse 16 says that the pride of life is at the core of our sin nature. So, so all of us are naturally concerned what people think of us. And we are all glory seekers. We want people to respect us and revere us. And, and sadly, that, that pride of life which is in the heart of every sinner oftentimes turns genuine religion and genuine morality into simply a petty competition for religious superiority. And so people strain to look the best, to do the most stuff, so that they can get glory and recognition. And we've all probably known people who specifically use religious practices not as a way to honor the Lord and as a way to love their neighbor, but instead as a way to bring glory to themselves. And you know, Paul had been one of those people himself before his conversion. And he talks about that in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6. And so Paul here, just imagine Paul, before his conversion, bragging about these things. He says, although I myself might have confidence, even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, 
as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. And Paul had really thought he was something. And you can just imagine him before his conversion walking around just reminding people or, you know, subtly making sure people understood all these incredible religious credentials he had. And, and, you know, sadly, even though we believe in salvation by grace alone, sometimes we're not a whole lot better. And we can turn ministry titles. We can turn our personal convictions. We can turn church involvement or family habits or just about anything else into a reason to boast or at least to feel like we are better than those around us. And of course, it's not just church people that do that either, is, is it? You know, like, I mean, everyone wants to feel superior about something, even if it's silly. You know, so the last couple of years, we've watched people walk around with their nose held high because they had a mask on or because they didn't have one on, because they were vaccinated or because they weren't vaccinated. I mean, we all are just naturally inclined to want to find some reason that, that makes me feel like I am better than you. And so while the question in verse 27 might initially seem fairly benign and fairly inapplicable, we have to appreciate that there is an impulse in all of us to boast. And we want reasons to boast. We might be smart enough not to say it out loud, but it's down deep inside all of us. So how does the gospel confront the pride of life? And Paul answers that justification by faith alone excludes boasting. You, you cannot boast and believe in the gospel. All right, well, well, we do boast, but, but you, I think you get the point. So, so chapter 4, verse 2 states the matter bluntly. It says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So, so the logic there is simple, right? That, that if my standing before God is based even 10% on what I do, I have something in which I can boast before God. I can say, God, I earned this. And, and, and you can say, God, I mean, you should love me because of look at what I have done. And, and frankly, that's, that's what we all want to be able to do. As proud sinners, we want to be able to boast in what we have done. Now, now you'd think, right, that, that everyone would want a free gospel. But the reality is, is that no one naturally wants a free gospel. We, we want to believe that we have earned God's acceptance. And we want to boast in our achievement. That's why every religion outside true gospel Christianity is fundamentally legalistic. It's because people want to think that they earned their place with God and they deserve His acceptance. That's why the question in verse 27 is important to sinners, even if they won't say it. But, but true gospel Christianity is very different. I mean, notice the declaration that Paul makes in verse 28. He says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So, so I want to park here because, because many people, I think you know, this is probably assumed sometimes in a context like us, but, but we need to park here because a lot of people refuse to accept what Paul says here. That, that we are justified we are made right with God solely by God's grace, apart from anything in us. Now, for example, a few years ago, there was a, an older couple that started attending our church, and they loved our church, and, and they wanted to join. And so uh, they came into my office, we did the membership interview, and, 
And the husband, he believed that Jesus died for his sins. And he believed in salvation by grace through faith in Christ. But he also believed that his works added something necessary for his salvation. And so uh, I had seen that in the questionnaire, and so I was starting to push him on that and ask him about it and pointed out a couple verses in Scripture that say that salvation is solely by God's grace. And I remember this man saying to me, I can't accept the idea that I don't contribute anything. He just refused to believe it. And so he denied salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And it was tragic. But because the moment you add anything to God's grace, you lose the gospel entirely. Now, that's, what, that's what was happening, for example, in, in Galatia. So, so there were people there at Galatia who had believed the gospel, and now people were coming along and telling them that they had to be circumcised and they had to do certain Jewish rituals to, to add to the grace of God and truly be saved. And notice what Paul tells them in Galatians 5, verses 1 through 4. He says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, and we could add to that any other work that we think contributes to our salvation, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law you have been severed from Christ. You, you who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Folks, that is strong language. And what Paul says there is so important. So important. Now again, a few years ago, there was a retired pastor here in Apple Valley that, that approached our church because he was hoping to be able to, to come and do some teaching in our church about evangelizing Catholics. And so, um, so we went to lunch, and we're talking, and, and this guy, he was very well educated, uh, went to a, a Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, good school, and he had had a fruitful ministry, he was well-spoken, well-educated, successful pastor, and so we're talking with him, and, and the guy, it, it came out in our conversation that this man insisted that, that someone could reject salvation by grace alone and still be saved. You don't need to believe in salvation by grace alone. You can believe in grace and, you know, whatever other things you think add to your salvation. But, but folks, Galatians 5 is clear. If you think your works add anything to Christ, what does Paul say? Christ will be of no benefit to you. You have fallen from grace. So, so I hope that everyone here is clear about the message that Paul is communicating in verse 28 of our text. We are justified by faith apart from works. There's no mixture. It is solely by God's grace. So, so if you are trusting in Christ plus anything, you know, you, you believe that Jesus died, but, but you're also doing these things over here that you think are going to ultimately end in you getting to heaven then I hope today you will come to the end of yourself and recognize that there's nothing you can add and you will trust in Christ. And if you are saved, stand firm in the work of Christ. Believe 
that Christ's grace is enough for, for every sin, every issue, and, and rest in Him. You know, Satan wants you to, to begin to slip back into a legalistic mindset. And, and, and it happens. You know, you know, where believers begin to think that, that I, I can't go to church. I can't pray until I fix you know, whatever it is in my life. And, and they, they're not willing to just rest in the grace of Christ. They think they've got to work it off. And Satan wants you to believe that. Rest in the grace of God. But, but that said, well, what does justification by faith mean as far as human boasting goes? To go back to the main issue of verses 27 and 28. And verse 27 answers, it is excluded. Now, the, the literal idea of that term is that it is locked out. You know, think of the gates of a city. And they are locked. So, so boasting is locked out of, of justification by faith. It's not welcome. There's no room for pride or human glory at the foot of the cross. Now, the foundation of our faith, as, as the song says, is nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. I mean, that is our only hope. So Christians should be the humblest people on the face of the earth because we are always mindful of the fact that we deserve wrath. We deserve judgment, and there is nothing we could do to solve it. I mean, we recognize that our sin is horrible, and there is nothing we can do to merit the love of God. Our only hope is to cling to the cross. So, so there is no room for pride in God's church. And there's no room for us to be self-righteous or to be condescending toward others. No, we should be humble before God and we should be full of grace, compassion towards everyone around us. Because we know how much grace we have received and we are fully aware of where we would be without that grace. And then furthermore, our hearts should absolutely be in rhythm with Galatians 6, verse 14, where Paul says, May it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I, should be, and I to the world. And so my heart must be that, that I am determined to deflect all glory from myself and to see it all go to the Savior. And so I want to make much of Christ in everything I do and in everything I say. So, so when I serve or, or when God changes me, I want people to see that it is not in me. It is because of Him. I want to boast in the cross and make sure everyone sees I am what I am because of God's grace and God's grace alone. I hope that is your heart. God forbid that I would glory except in the cross. So, so the first big assertion of our text is boast in Christ alone. The gospel should drive us to glory in Jesus, not in ourselves. And then the second big assertion of our text is preach the gospel to everyone. So notice the next question that Paul's Jewish opponent asks in verse 29. He says, or is God the God of the Jews only? Now, now that's a question that... Um, might sound very arrogant to us, right? Like, who would say such a thing? And yet we need to understand, we need to sympathize with this Jew and, and recognize that, that, that this question is, is rooted, at least in part, 
in a legitimate biblical truth. So Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6 says, For you are a holy people to the Lord. Speaking of Israel, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So, so God is clear that Israel did uniquely belong to God. But many Jews took that fact to mean that their covenant relationship with him all but guaranteed their final salvation. And so they thought that only a really wicked Jew who did something really bad would miss out on heaven. But here comes Paul, and he is arguing that having a Jewish heritage or receiving circumcision don't justify. No, instead, you can only be justified by faith in the finished work of Jesus. And this Jew, he retorts, he's like, no, wait a second, Paul. That can't be right. And doesn't God belong to us? Aren't we his special people? And so your doctrine of justification by faith, that denies our Jewish privilege. Now, I doubt that any of us lay awake at night worrying about Jewish privilege, right? I mean, you're sitting there like, man, I'm worried about that. We don't do that. But, but because we're Gentiles, but, but we've talked about the fact that, that we as Gentiles also cling to certain things that we think gain us privilege with God. You, know, you talk to certain people and they think they've got privilege with God because of their baptism, because of their family heritage in a particular church. Of course I'm going to heaven. I'm a Lutheran, or I'm a Methodist, or I'm a Baptist. You know, or, or, or just simply by the fact that they identify as Christian. I mean, certainly God accepts me. I, I've always called myself a Christian. And so when they hear the gospel, or when a gospel invitation is given to them, they think, I don't need to be justified by faith. I'm a Christian. And they think that they've got some sort of backstage pass with God that gives them favoritism before him. So how does Paul respond to that argument? Well, he says that the answer is that God is one, and therefore, he is the Savior of all people. So notice how Paul answers the question in verses 29 through 30. So so the Jew asks, or is God the God of the Jews only? And then I think Paul's answer really begins next. He says, is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Now now this is really a cunning argument because Paul draws on one of the most foundational Jewish beliefs and one of their favorite verses. So uh, the Shema, as the Jews called it, and one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament says in Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So, so folks, the Old Testament is built on the conviction that God is one. There are not many gods for all the nations of the earth. No, Israel's faith was monotheistic. They believed in one God who stands over all creation. And Paul uses that shared conviction to make a really important point. So if God is one, well, then he can't just be the God of the Jews. He must be the God who stands over all nations. And of course, that's consistent with the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament did not teach that God only belonged to the Jews. 
You know, for example, Psalm 67, verses 2 through 4 say, uh, pray that, that your way, speaking of God's way, may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. So, so God has always desired the salvation of all peoples. Now, that's not to say that Israel didn't have a special relationship with God, right? Because Deuteronomy and, and plenty of passages make that clear. So, so and, and as well, Paul's talked about that in Romans 3, and he's going to talk about it again in chapter 9. So, so they had many blessings, but, but we've talked on Sunday nights about the fact that God gave them those blessings so that they would be a light to every nation. But, but what happened is is that many Jews twisted God's blessings and privileges for the Jews into an exclusive privilege. As if God only belonged to them and He would only save Jews. And so Paul says, you need to remember that God is one. He is not just your God. He is the creator of all things and He stands over every nation. And so He is the Savior of all people, not just the Jews. And so Paul is saying God will save anyone, no matter their background, no matter who they are or where they come from, if they come to Him in faith. And folks, that's something that that we need to remember also. So so the application we'd make of this is that we must share the gospel with everyone. Now, I doubt that anyone here would would openly reject that application, right? Like, Like we look at Jonah and we are appalled that he is angry at God for showing mercy to the people of Nineveh. We think, what a loser. You know, but the reality is, is that we all have that same tendency towards bitterness and exclusivism. It's in us all. And if you let bitterness grow unchecked, it can play some terrible, terrible tricks on your perspective. You know, I've seen it. That, that you begin to desire someone's pain and you revel when it comes. You know, it's like, you know, when some guy cruises past you on the highway and then he gets pulled over by a cop and you're cheering as you drive by. You know, we, we can do that on a much deeper scale spiritually. And, um, and so we can begin to think that, that certain people shouldn't hear the gospel. And we can even get irritated when they respond to the gospel. And, and, and folks, it's one thing to entertain legitimate doubts of certain people's professions of faith. But, but it is something entirely different when we wish that someone would not be saved, that they would not know Christ. I think that tendency can affect our zeal for world missions. You know, there, and I want to be clear here that there are some evil governments around the world, and some of those nations are filled with evil people who do horrible things. And there's no question about that. But, but folks, God is one, and He reigns over all the earth, and He is the only Savior. So, so we should zealously desire that the gospel reaches every corner of the world, even the darkest places, and that every nation responds with faith in Jesus. And we should rejoice anytime anyone receives the gospel. And we should love every brother and sister in Christ. And knowing that our bond in Christ is is more significant than any other worldly priority. And I hope that we are united in that conviction. 
that, that we want Christ to save everyone. And, and from there, maybe there's someone in your family or in your workplace who has done you tremendous harm. They have really hurt you. They have really sinned against you. And, and I don't want to minimize the potential evil that has been done. But I hope we understand and I hope we remember that the gospel is powerful enough to save anyone. No one is beyond the reach of God's grace. And God says He is one. And He stands over all people. And so we want to see all people come to Christ. So, so you know, if, if God can transform Paul from a persecutor of the church to one of its greatest witnesses... God can change anyone. And so let's go to all people with the gospel of Christ. And so pray for their salvation. Take every opportunity to share the good news of Christ with anyone who will listen to you. And make sure that eternal priorities take precedence over earthly ones. Or maybe there's someone here that, that you believe that you are yourself beyond the reach of God's grace. You've done too many bad things. You've rejected God too much. And you, you think that there is no way that God would love or save a sinner like me. And God says He is one. He stands over you like He stands over everyone else. And He is the God of all people, including you. Not just the really cleaned up, tidy ones. And Romans is abundantly clear that He is ready to save anyone who comes to Him in faith. So if you've never done so, confess your sins to the Lord. Repent of your sin. Believe on Christ. Because justification by faith is available to everyone who believes. And so in some, verses 29 and 30 say that there is no room for exclusivism in the gospel. The gospel, God stands over all people. And justification is available to anyone who believes. So we need to preach the gospel to everyone. Because we never know where God's going to work, and how He's going to save. And then the third big assertion of our text is that we must obey God's will. So, so verse 31 says, Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Now, I have to say that there's some debate about what question exactly Paul is answering here, and, and based on what question he's answering, what exactly he is answering. So, so one very common view, there's two main views. Uh, the, the one view is that, that Paul's Jewish opponent believes that salvation in the Old Testament was by works and based on national heritage. And, and that the Old Testament teaches and, and that, that, that the Old Testament teaches that. So, so he believes in justification, or he believes that justification by faith is a brand new doctrine that Paul has, that Paul has created that contradicts the Old Testament. And so if that's what is in this guy's mind, what he is saying there, is, or what he is accusing Paul of, is nullifying the law in the sense of contradicting the law. All right? And that's one common view. And if that's what the opponent means, then when Paul says we establish the law, uh, then he would mean that his doctrine of, of justification by faith is consistent with the Old Testament. That it is not nullifying the law, it is building on the law or establishing it. And, uh, and that's certainly true, right? And justification by faith is consistent with the Old Testament, and, and we're going to talk about that 
uh, more when we get into chapter 4. But I don't believe that's his primary concern here. Because, because he doesn't talk about nullifying the Scriptures or the Law and the Prophets. He, he just specifically mentions nullifying the Law. Uh, speaking there of, of the Law of Moses. So, so most commentators believe that the Jewish accusation is that Paul's doctrine of justification by faith is antinomian or anti-law, or, or, that, or, or that the Jew is accusing Paul of believing that, well, if we're justified by faith, then, then we don't have to obey God's law. We, we can do whatever we want. And it's not hard to see why the, the Jew would make that accusation, right? Because this guy, he's always believed that, that he is saved by obeying the Jewish law, at least in part. I mean, sure, there's room for grace, but but he believes that the law plays an essential role in his salvation. And here comes Paul, and Paul says, no, the law does not save, you're justified by faith alone. And this guy's thinking, well, if that's so, then what's the point of obeying the law? Why do I need to obey the law if, if, if God's grace is free? And so the Jew claims that any theology which, which frees people from obligation to the law has to be false. You know, it's like, you know, have you ever seen people do this? You know, they build a straw man, and then they laugh as they knock it down. And so that's what the guy's doing. He's saying, you believe that we don't need to obey God's law. That's ridiculous. That's absurd. Your whole doctrine is nonsense. And Paul here, he takes that accusation very seriously. In fact, uh, one of the major purposes of Romans 6 through 8 is to clearly say that justification by faith does not free someone to live however he pleases. In fact, Romans 6 is going to say that if you understand the grace of God to mean that you can just do whatever you want, you probably have not truly received the grace of God. Because the grace of God changes us. But, but it's sort of like Paul can't wait until chapter 6 to make that point, right? Like he's just got to slip in a quick little clarification here to, to relieve the tension, to keep people listening, Till he gets to that main point in chapter 6. And so he's saying here that Christians must obey the law. And, and, and so, so he just makes a quick point here, and, and he says that, that no, we don't annul the law, we establish it, meaning that, that we call people to obey it. And in particular, when he gets to chapter 8, he's going to say that, that we can obey the law through the Spirit in a way that, that the unbeliever can't. So so I think this is a helpful clarification. Turn over to chapter 8 and look at what Paul says in verses 3 and 4. Chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. So this whole issue of the law and the Christian is a, is a complicated one that we're going to have to talk about a lot as we work our way through the next few chapters. So, so verse 3 says, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through faith, through the flesh, God did sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, so what is Paul saying there? He's saying that in the power of your own flesh, you cannot obey the law. But the indwelling Spirit allows the believer to fulfill the law. We actually can do what God expects. Now, 
Chapter 7 is going to clarify that that does not mean that we are bound to the law of Moses, all right? But instead, we are bound to Christ. So, so Paul's not saying in our text, and he's not saying in Romans 8, that you need to go out and you know, slaughter a dove or a, a lamb today and offer sacrifice. Or that if you're eating pizza, that, that you're doing something wrong because there's you know, milk and meat. Or, or all those other things that would be applications of the law of Moses. No, Christians are bound to the law of Christ, which is very different from the law of Moses. And, and we're going to say a whole lot more about that as we work our way through this series. But, but for now, just notice the main point of verse 31. Salvation by grace does not free me to live a life of unrestrained sin. You know, I, I mean, sometimes you hear Christians you know, that, that will set up this contrast like, and say things like, you know, I choose to focus on grace, not on law. As if those are contradictory ideas. And, and so God, you know, God is very clear here that, that the grace of God does not free us to live unrestrained lives of sin. No, God is holy. And God has defined for us what it means to live a holy life through His commands, through the principles of Scripture, and through the examples of Christ and, and the saints. So we have to pursue a holy life. And the strength of God's Spirit enables us to do so. Now, none of us are going to bat a thousand in the pursuit of holiness. We're all going to fail. But God says in Romans 8 that we can, by the grace of God, fulfill the requirements of the law. So Christian, we rejoice in the security that you have in Christ. You are justified by faith. You know, give thanks that, that you don't have to earn a place in heaven and you don't have to worry about if you've done enough to, to earn the favor of God or if you've done so much that you've lost the favor of God. No. Your debt is paid and your eternity is secure. But be very careful that that security does not turn into apathy towards obedience to Christ and holiness. No. God has called us to, to serve Him. Your body, as we read last week, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Christ bought you with His blood. And so your first obligation is to glorify Him and to please Him. And so do not mistake God's free grace for freedom to just do whatever you want to do. But but circling back to where we began, we don't obey, though, to glorify ourselves. No, no, the cross has changed my life. And, And it's God's Spirit who who enables me to to do these things. You know, it is the cross that crucifies us to the world and the world to us. So so as I obey and as I live a life that pleases God, I do so boasting in the cross and making very clear all the time that it is only by the grace of God that I am what I am. And then returning to my introduction today, let's remember that the gospel is not just a ticket to heaven. And it's not just, you know, the, the stuffy, complicated theology for eggheads and academians. No, the gospel is for real life. And it has implications for, for everything that I do. And, and, so, and so we must, so, so the gospel is to change the entire orientation of my life and it is to shape everything I do, everything I think, every priority of my life. So absolutely believe in 
and rest in the truths of verses 21 through 26. And then live out the implications of verses 27 through 31. Boast in Christ every day. And share the gospel with everyone you can and obey God's will. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage. I thank you for the wisdom of your word, the clarifications it provides. Thank you today for the cross of Christ. And Lord, I pray that every day of our lives we would live in the shadow of the cross, remembering who we are on our own, what Jesus did for us. And Lord, help us to be determined to boast in the cross before you, before our brothers and sisters in Christ, and before all the world. And use us, God, to reach people for your sake, for your glory, and help us to live lives that please you and glorify you. In Christ's name, amen.